Hi, everyone. Welcome to the August 6, 2021 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. Let's get to it. A significant increase in cases of the COVID Delta variant has led to even more changes to guidelines and restrictions throughout Colorado. The city of Denver will be requiring all city employees who are not vaccinated to be tested for the virus twice a week in September. Meanwhile, school districts throughout the metro area are finding themselves divided over whether or not to install mask mandates with Jefferson County schools facing protests around the issue. Patty Calhoun from Westward, we have vaccination mandates, we have testing mandates, there's mask mandates. I don't even know where we go from here, but it sounds like we are far from over. What did you take away from this week? Well, sadly, like the spread of the Delta variant, this is going to get more confusing and worse before it's cleared up, just because we don't know how fast the Delta variant is going to spread. It does. It is a fast spreader, and it's really bad for people who haven't been vaccinated. It is not so bad for people who have been vaccinated, but of course, they then can still spread it, which is why you have to do the masks again. No one's happy about getting remasked. Certainly, anyone who's been vaccinated is not happy about the number of people who have simply chosen not to get vaccinated. It's interesting because we talked one or two weeks ago about the new $100 Walmart card, and that actually has moved the bar more than the million-dollar lottery. And I think that's because people who think they're going to win, not win a million dollars also think they're not going to get COVID. But as we've seen from the increasing numbers, people are still getting COVID at an increasingly rapid clip here. David Kopel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. It's great to have you back. Your fans were worried that you had found a whole new job in D.C. or something yeah. like that. The rest assured he's back. Um, David, um, the state seems at this point, and things can change tomorrow, but the state seems to want to stay out of the mandate business and leave it to local control, counties and school districts. Um, that lets counties judge what's best for themselves, but it also uh, puts a lot of onus on other entities, health departments, things like that, and it can get a little messy. How do you think this, do you think the state's going to want to get involved if more protests and conflicts come from these potential mask mandates and vaccination issues? I, my hope is Governor Polis's instincts are to not get involved and let local communities make local decisions. As you know, I'm, I'm very pro-vaccine, got the vaccine as, as soon as I could, which was in, in March. And in, in my view, the, the benefits far, far outseed the exceed the potential risks. But, you know, we have to accept that there are some people in the country who still believe in the Food and Drug Administration and take that seriously. And the FDA has not yet said that this vaccine is safe and effective. It's an emergency use authorization. So for those people, I understand their reluctance. And I think the, the if Mayor Hancock's approach is fair. You, you should not force vaccines on people or any injection into their body. But the alternative is then you, you get tested frequently, and that, that's a, a fair uh, compromise for, for public safety. For, for schools, I think the mask mandates are terrible, particularly for younger kids, because you have to think about health in a holistic way. It's not just... It's not as if the only health issue in the world is not getting the Chinese Communist Party's germ warfare virus. You also want to avoid uh, all, all kinds of mental health problems and other physical problems. It's really hard on kids. They need to see how other people's lips move. Just for one example, if a kid is having trouble reading, he benefits by watching other people read aloud and seeing how their lips move. So the, the, I'm, I think the mask mandate for, for kids who are not at, at, at only at very, very small risk uh, from the disease is, uh, is misguided. 
Eric Sonneman, columnist with both Colorado Politics and the Denver Gazette. Uh, last week at this table, you talked about um, there, is there going to be a price for unvaccinated folks to pay uh, at this stage of the game? And I think we're starting to see some of that with some of these, whether it's testing mandates or some people saying, hey, you've got to be vaccinated or, or get out kind of thing. Uh, is this kind of what you had in mind when we, we talked about it last week? Yeah, I think there's been a notable shift in public opinion over two or three weeks, I don't think you can put a particular time stamp on it, but it is relatively recent where there's a growing realization that there is one large category of people here who are dictating that we're going way back into this cycle, and those are those who are refusing the vaccine. Obviously, there's some people who have religious objections or there are some people who rightfully can't do it for health reasons, and they should have an exemption, no question about that. But for others who just, you know, I, I saw some cartoon of somebody talking about, you know, we're wearing a T-shirt, muscle shirt. I take a bullet for my country, you know, but I won't get a, a little jab in my arm. Um, we are in this predicament largely because there is a substantial chunk of this country and, and of our locality who is refusing the vaccine. Um, that is their legal right, but that does not mean that's without consequence. That does not mean they're entitled to a job. That does not mean they're entitled to get on an airplane, that they're entitled to admission at the concert hall, the sports venue, uh, the, the local pub or restaurant or what have you. Um, credit to Michael Hancock. I thought it was one of the more forthright, uh, strong, I'm in charge here moves he's made in his third and final term as mayor. There's going to be pushback and blowback. We've already seen that. There are reports today about the percentage of the Denver Police Department that is not vaccinated, which is a scary number in itself, and the percentage of those uh, police officers who are disinclined to get the vaccine. Um, if they don't want the vaccine, I you know, hope they get used to having a, a swab up their nose a, a couple times a week because that's probably the alternative. Elena Alvarez from Axios Denver joins us. Great to have you back, Elena. What do we need to know about how uh, the city of Denver is tackling this and the other issues that are around it that have come up this week? Yeah, absolutely. I think the state of play right now in Denver is that, you know, absent a local mandate, local businesses are increasingly having to weigh the pros and cons of putting in their own rules, whether that's following uh, New York City's lead in requiring um, proof of vaccination for indoor dining, things like uh, going into indoor gyms, um, movie theaters. And it really is right now leading to a bit of a patchwork of policies basically from one door to the next. We have a couple of businesses on Colfax. This is a really small example, but you know, one business is only requiring proof of vaccination on Wednesdays and the other is requiring that daily. And that's, again, just a small example of the differences that are already playing out. Um, I think the bottom line right now is that the onus of keeping people safe indoors is falling on the backs of business owners who are increasingly weary from having to bring down the hammer for months on end on this stuff. And they're really looking to the Hancock administration, what I'm hearing for business owners, um, to have that support uh, to not have to, you know, implement these rules and run the risk of dealing with disgruntled customers who, you know, forego their business altogether there. Yeah, so we saw this week, I mean, it, was, it made a variety of headlines that uh, customers who are disgruntled do not take it out on executives who have made this job. It's usually a flight attendant, a server, who had no, no say in how the rule was going down, but they're paying the price and uh, seeing the confrontation. It'll be interesting to see how it develops. 
Denver Mayor Michael Hancock's $450 million bond proposal was passed by the Denver City Council this week with just a few adjustments. The proposal originally focused on housing, parks and recreation, facilities and transportation, with each area having its own category in the ballot. While City Council agreed to this, they did not agree uh, with the idea to categorize the $100 million National Western Center Arena as a facilities expense. When it is time to vote in Denver, the arena will be in a category of its own. David, we start with you on this one. Uh, Will Denverites be as generous as usual if it's itemized? Well, the great thing is the taxpayer's bill of rights guarantees them the choice. So they'll have a number of things to increase their own property taxes for various projects, and they can look at each project one at a time and, and make their decision. And whether you Whatever comes out, that's the the fair and right way to do it. Uh, kudos to the city council for breaking up, for making the na- 190 million dollars for the National Western Stock Show uh, welfare program into a separate thing. Let's remember when the the Western Stock Show was upgraded several decades ago as part of a bond issue paid for by the taxpayers. And part of the bond issue was the people who run the stock show would pay for all the ongoing facilities, maintenance, and improvements. And they totally welched on that deal, left the taxpayers with the bag. So the question is now, when you've been cheated once on the corporate welfare side, are the Denver voters dumb enough uh, to go back for it again? So I hope on this one they're not. Uh, Eric, is uh, this itemization a problem for Mayor Hancock, or, hey, you know, everything did get passed, it's really not that big of a deal? We'll see. Uh, in many past bond issues, I remember back when, you know, John Hickenloop was mayor, so we're talking now a dozen years ago or more, I think we had bond issues A through I, whatever that number is, nine or ten bond issues, and voters picked and choose, but mostly they picked. I, I think they all went through, or almost all of them uh, went through. So just the fact that they're broken apart does not necessarily spell death for them. That said, I'm you know less. Co- I was very complimentary of the mayor in the first question vis-a-vis COVID and and vaccination requirements, et cetera. I'm less complimentary here. I just think this bond issue has been rushed. I don't think the need has been established for it. I don't think the public has really been engaged in the process. Can it pass? Of course. It's Denver, you know, my old line, the more you tax yourself, the closer to God. And, uh, and, and, and anything can possibly uh, pass here. But I, I think this one and the National Western, or we don't even know exactly what it's linked to the National Western. I mean, it hasn't been defined in terms of, is this part of the National Western Complex? Is this for truck route, monster truck rallies and all-star wrestling? Is this for high school basketball? What is the need and use of this arena? And they better get that definition out there and they better start building a base of support. Elena, did you find uh, any of the developments within how the city council tackled this surprising? No, because we know that this council is eager to challenge the mayor every chance that they get. Um, Just piggybacking off of what Eric said, he is actually echoing a lot of the concerns that the council members have raised about this. They don't understand why this matters, um, how the money kind of flows into construction costs and things like that, and basically how it will benefit the community as a whole. Um, and it's important to remember that this uh, project would also eat up 42, roughly 42% of the bond budget money. So um, it's a huge expenditure. Um, and, you know, of course, count, uh, 
Mayor Hancock is touting this as a huge economic driver in a time, you know, where we're needing to bounce back from the p- pandemic. Um, but council members aren't convinced and, and only hurting his case is uh, his allies um, sending out these mailers, uh, basically chastising council members for their opposition um, against this plan, which they found out about <laughs> and did not help his case. So um, I think the bottom line is that, you know, without the full backing of the council, um, he faces a bit of an up uh, uphill battle with voters who are going to question the same things that the council members are. And this really matters to Mayor Hancock with only two years left um, because this could, you know, the spending proposal could potentially shape his legacy. Patty, do you think the overall uh, price tag for the arena goes down maybe after Westward completes its negotiations over naming rights? <laughs> yes, because I'm pretty sure they want to sell those to us. You know, the change for the little arena, the circa 1909 arena, which is already historic, that was in the original plan. There have been some financing issues since the original plan was released. You could see maybe people wanting to put $30 million to something that was already part of it, although turning it into like a giant food hall is not exactly what the neighbors want. But the arena just being sprung out there without it being clear, is this replacing the Coliseum? It, what is it exactly going to be? That was a big surprise to many people in the state of the city. It wasn't a good time to spring it. And clearly, city council was not happy with it. But also, everyone in that neighborhood is not jumping on boards. They're not saying this is going to be a great economic driver for our neighborhood. So you're going to have both opposition on council and opposition from the neighbors themselves. That makes that one a tough a tough sale. The facility's original lineup, which includes like touchy-feely, fuzzy libraries and things like that, that'll pr- probably go through now without the arena. But the National Western portion, I'm thinking that will go down. This week, Governor Jared Polis announced he intends to declare the mudslides on I-70 a state disaster area. Damage in the mudslides have initiated more conversations around possible transportation solutions in the mountains as pictures of people lined up on Independence Pass, Cottonwood Pass, uh, three hours around Steamboat, uh, Leadville running out of resources. Uh, It's been interesting. Uh, Eric, it feels that transportation through the mountains is kind of like the water issue in Colorado. It affects everybody. It's very important. And nobody has a solution. Does Something like this summer where people are seeing the effects, and the mudslides aren't just in Glenwood Canyon, that's the, the, made the, the biggest news, but they're all over the state since there's a lot of burn scars. Will this kickstart a discussion? Oh, I don't know. We've been talking so much. Uh, it's going to add a new element to the discussion. At some level, you have to wonder about Jared Polis, you know, sitting in his office or sitting at home on an evening saying, you know, it's not enough that I have COVID. Uh, now I need to do, you know, 12 feet of mud and and Glenwood Canyon on top of it. That's part of uh, the price of being governor. Uh, The disaster declaration that he's talking about, both at the state level and and requesting a federal designation, is obviously to let some dollars flow, and I assume that will happen. But whatever the declaration, there's no denying that this is a disaster, and it is not one that's going to be fixed anytime soon. Uh, I'm not an engineer, but the engineers that I've talked to casually, they say, Lord only knows what the condition of that road is once you get all the mud and all the rock and everything off of it. And even when that happens, there is no guarantee that there's not another mudslide coming, you know, a week from Tuesday, uh, whenever, whenever that is. Glenwood Canyon was regarded as, and, and, and still is regarded as, somewhat a marvel of engineering. 
uh, in terms of the way they built that road through there. And it was impressive. But this is the price you pay. And it just shows how vulnerable as a state we are. We have two transportation spines, I-25 north-south, I-70 east-west. And when one of those goes down, as I-70 has largely gone down, um, it is crippling. I read yesterday that restaurant receipts in Steamboat Springs are up 400% because of all the traffic being rerouted there. And this is not just short-term. Yeah, as uh, seeing different reports out of Glenwood and that they're getting the double whammy, they don't have any supplies because the trucks can't make it, and then no one's there to, to for, for business. I mean, it's uh, it's intriguing of the different uh, towns that have been affected. Elena, do you think there is enough there this year that leaders will be motivated, or is this too too big of a lift for them right now with everything else going on? That's a great question, and I'm really glad I'm not making calling the shots here, because uh, what a mess. Um, I don't know, to be perfectly frank. Uh, it certainly is a huge problem. What I think is most um, pressing about this issue right now is that it's not only a Colorado issue. This is a national issue where you know businesses are trying to send their drivers to deliver goods from point A to point B, and it's taking it's costing time and money. Um, and we, like Eric said, we don't have a clear picture on when this is going to clear up. Um, and even in Denver, lawmakers are talking about and warning about food shortages because goods are not able to make it this way. Gas shortage or gas price hikes. Um, I mean, the, the, the list goes on and on. So it certainly seems like the urgency would be there to take action, but we'll see. Patty, there's no you know, one easy fix. Even uh, there's an analysis I saw this week about Cottonwood Pass. You know, that was the initial idea before Glenwood Canyon, but paving that is, is no easy feat. Um, do you think we're going to see somebody coming out there saying it is time to bite this bullet and do something? Well, we'll see some people coming out and saying that, like Rick Enstrom of Enstrom Candies, who's from Grand Junction, who said this is bad. We've been talking about it for a long time. We need action on a state level. Certainly great news for Cheyenne and Rock Springs, a lovely city, because people are going to be taking transportation. It's going to be going over I-80. That's where you're going to see the trucks going. For people who want to be tourists in Colorado, maybe they'll just stick to the southern portion of the state. Maybe they won't go to the western slope. It's going to be definitely devastating for the tourism industry within the state, especially in that part of the state. I saw one of the most amusing things ever, Frontier Airlines doing something smart, which is hyping that you can fly back and forth to Grand Junction from Denver for 70 bucks. And it's going to be a lot smarter than taking a seven-hour round trip. And it being 2021, there's probably no uh, rental cars available. <laughs> so it's, you can get to the beautiful Grand Junction Airport, and you're on your own from there. But, you know, at least you can yeah. get there. That, that's a good point. And they, did, they didn't say they would duct tape you to your seat, which is the other good thing Frontier did this week. So, so Enhanced customer service, yes. Uh, David, uh, any potential solutions come with some pretty comprehensive price tags. What do you think is going to happen? Clearly, Cottonwood, Cottonwood Pass has to be fully paved and also appropriately changed so it can be something that a normal driver rather than a, a skilled mountain driver can do. We, the fact is Californians come into this state, they drive on our roads, and so we, we need east-west and north-south arteries for them to get through. It, it's doable. There were proposals for it a few years ago, the shot down. It, it's, I, I think it's especially appropriate now because one of the things you learn from disasters is to have resiliency, you need to have viable alternatives. Cottonwood would be a huge improvement on that. 
Secondly, I think we need to start thinking about Grand Junction has actually offered to build a good train depot for the Burlington Northern as it goes through there. The, the railroad is open because it's further down the canyon, so the mudslides weren't as bad. The, the railroad only carries 200 passengers a day. That's useless. Uh, it, it, but for freight, it could carry a lot more. They don't, the railroad doesn't want to put a stop in at Grand Junction unless they get enough a guarantee of enough fray, which Grand Junction can't really do. This might be one of the cases where it would be appropriate to provide a subsidy so that we have this uh, as an important backup to move goods east and west. Let's get a quick take on this last one. The Common Sense Institute and the University of Colorado at Denver have collaborated on a study calculating the estimated cost of homelessness in Denver. According to their findings released this week, the city is spending between $42,000 and $104,000 per person on housing, health care, and other services. Elena, a quick take on this one. Uh, what were your thoughts when you saw this study come out? You know, that's a really wide range. And just for anyone who's confused about that, it's because there's some data missing from a few city agencies. But I think um, my big takeaway is that this report comes at a really uh, critical time because this fall is going to be uh, a time when homelessness comes to a head. And that's because this November, uh, the city council is voting on a five-year plan, a spending and strategy plan to tackle homelessness. Um, And on top of that, Denver voters are also going to be deciding on a ballot measure backed by Denver GOP chairman Garrett Flicker um, that would essentially allow uh, citizens to sue the city um, if encampments aren't cleared within 72 hours of complaining. Um, There's also a, a part that would require the city to set up uh, sanctioned campsites. But the bottom line is we now have a report with real figures here. Sure, they're being disputed a bit by the city, but um, this comes right before we're having to make some really critical decisions. Uh, And so I think that's my that's my big takeaway. Patty, uh, a relevant study that's going to spur action. Well, it's no surprise, really, when you add up the numbers we did a couple weeks ago, and there's hundred, almost $100,000 in Denver's budget just for the next year going to homeless issues. So the big issue is, is there a way to actually start solving this? And it's going to be bits and pieces, and none of them are cheap. David, uh, 42, I mean, it is a big spread, but I think it catches a lot of people's attention. Even if it's the low bar, 42,000, that's a lot of money per person. Well, and as the report also says, they they estimated as of January 2020, 6,000 homeless people in the Denver metro area and 7,000 people with jobs trying to to help the homeless. Uh, So we've been putting a lot of effort into this and and seeming uh, and not making progress at all. Part of the problem is the euphemism in language. People experiencing homelessness is a symptom of why they're out there in the first place, which in the overwhelming number of cases is A, drug abuse, particularly methamphetamine, and B, severe mental illness. Until we start treating those causes, then talking about the, whether they have a home or not, that's the, that's the symptom and not the cause. Eric, wrap it up for us. Money is not exclusively fixing this problem. Color me shocked. <laughs> we will we will color you shocked indeed, Eric. Uh, very good point. Uh, and that's the definition of a quick take right there. Well done, Eric. Uh, let's get to our very favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off. Well, I'm going to say something nice again about Frontier Airlines. I flew from Missoula to Denver yesterday in less time than it took me to get home from the airport on I-70 because it was closed early because of a crash. But also, the airport really needs to remind the final approach facilities that where we're supposed to go wait for cell phones, that the bathrooms are open to everyone, not just those who buy bad pizzas. (laughs) (laughs) David. 
There will be a ceremony in, in downtown Denver uh, this weekend uh, reflecting on the uh, anti-Chinese riot uh, that took place in, in 1840, 1880. It was a democratic election parade, actually, that then, then turned into a riot and was ultimately quelled by the Denver sheriff calling out 500 men of the Posse Comitatus, citizens with their own firearms, uh, that finally suppressed it. I know everybody's been missing the, the trivia and history from the 1800s. It's great to have you back, David. Eric. I hate to be the bearer of bad news for our viewers who are watching us at our prime time of 8 o'clock on a Friday night. But if you're watching, it means it is too late to get to the El Paso County Republican dinner with Marjorie Taylor Greene, which is going on this evening. That is really the ticket for the rebound of the Republican Party in Colorado is bringing Marjorie Taylor Greene here. Really shows they have uh, the, uh, their hands on what the problem is and why they're on such a prolonged losing streak. And that's a preview of my column this weekend. Finger on the pulse of Colorado, brought to you by <laughs> El Paso County Republicans. Elena. Denver is now at the highest threat level of COVID-19 spread, according to the CDC. And it joins several other counties, including Douglas, Adams, Arapahoe, Broomfield, and Weld counties. Um, and that's a disgrace. Time to say something nice about somebody. Patty. If you are watching this at home tonight, not only are you not hearing Marjorie Green, but you are not seeing Tom Noel's retirement roast. Uh, as David pointed out, history is important. We have to remember what happened. That Those Chinese riots were horrible, what happened to good citizens of Denver at the time. So we have to remember history. Tom Noel helped us do that. You're here. David. Um, I missed it last week, so I'll say it this week. The, the great Coloradan uh, Dick Lamb, who was, ever since I met him when I was 14 at the State Democratic Convention, was uh, in 1974, it was an inspiring free thinker, made me very proud to, to be a Coloradan. And the, the last time I saw him was in, in uh, 2019 when he lectured at my uh, uh, Denver University class on the Colorado Constitution. And his last book about his life and career, The Governor's Chessboard, is, in my opinion, an excellent book. Eric. Nicely said, David. Thank you. Uh, being close to that, being close to that family. And let me shift gears, both personally and uh, in terms of local journalism world. Marianne Goodland did this as her say something nice last week. I'm going to do it as my say something nice this week. Linda Shapley. Uh, I've been writing for Colorado Politics now for exactly two years. She has been my editor. She is a joy to work with. She is highly, highly professional. I don't know how our publication managed to let her get away to Colorado Community Media, uh, but it is a, a win for Colorado Community Media, and thank you, Linda, for all of your support. Here, here. Elena. I echo congratulations to Linda, my former editor as well. Um, and I also just wanted to give it up to our Colorado Olympians who are crushing it in Japan. Here, here. The first one, the first goal out of track and field was uh, a Colorado, and that was uh, very nice to see. That is indeed all the time we have for uh, Colorado Inside Out tonight. Thank you so much for tuning in. For everybody here at PBS 12, I'm Dominic Dizzuti. Thanks for watching. Good night. Thank you.